Hyphilic design, it's more than greenery. It's about facilitating our connection with nature. It's recognising that we're biological beings and we're evolutionarily hardwired, genetically programmed to respond to nature. Hello, I'm Claire Bennett, host of the Original Thinkers podcast, where we take a deeper dive into what it takes to have an original thought, the impact of it and how it endures over time. At a time when original thinking could not be more important, I'll be talking to some of our country's leading minds about their creative process and about how creativity can improve lives and make a meaningful difference. On today's episode, I speak with Jana Soderland. Jana is a biophilic design consultant and sustainability professional, and she's chair of Biophilic Cities Australia. Welcome, Jana. Yeah, thank you, Claire. Nice to be here. Jana, I was really interested when I was looking into your background before today's discussion that your early career was in environmental science, population and world resources. I'm really interested to hear about this. What drew you to this field and what can you tell me about it? It certainly sounds like the type of field that must be in hot demand today. Well, I was raised in a nature-loving family. So my father particularly, we were always out camping, always. So I had an early love of nature. And when I was trying to decide what to do with my life, I was reading through the course handbook and sort of environmental science. I just wanted to be outdoors and in nature and doing something I was really interested. So it was a great course. You know, it covered a broad range of subjects from resource politics, resource economics, ecology, navigation, uh, meteorology, but also philosophy, which I got really interested in. So environmental ethics and science, technology and society. So how we interact with nature and how we've evolved our science and the worldviews that were developed, the paradigms in which we operate. So, you know, at the end of the course, like I went on and did my honours in protection of wilderness areas involving Indigenous people and a lot of deep ecology, that philosophy about it, that real deep connection that we have for nature. But the environmental science side is, oh, after studying, you sort of didn't want to eat, drink or breathe, especially (laughs) after pollutants and toxicology. So it was studying the problems. That's why I sort of evolved into sustainability later in life, because that was about looking at solutions. Your career then went on to do further studies in sustainability and climate change, as well as transformative and resilient thinking combined with urban design, which you can see obviously how that progression comes about because if you're in environmental science and you're looking at world resources, you really can't avoid looking at sustainability and climate change. I mean, there's really nothing that's more important in our current era. The Original Thinkers podcast is all about original thinking and how we can have a lasting impact on the world. But in particular, I'm interested in hearing about the study in transformative and resilient thinking. So how does that work in the mix? How did you draw that into your studies? After I'd done my PhD, it just caught my eye. I am interested in human thought and thinking and the way we have got to where we are and how we can progress from here. So resilience is to bounce back after stress or abuse or something. But in resilience thinking, it's more than just 
bouncing back and recovering. It's about cultivating the capacities to sustain development in the face of both expected and surprising change. So resilience of a community, a city, a rainforest, any social ecological system, it all means it has the capacity to be flexible and deal with changes without changing its basic identity. It's very much about interconnectedness. So it's about not starting with one plan with an end goal, but recognising that you need to adapt as you go because of that interconnectedness of everything. So you have those feedback loops built in because the interconnectedness, you know, can really influence the perceived outcomes. And it also means that things can change really rapidly. So that's what this resilience and transformative thinking is about recognising those connections, the social, economical, ecological, and really looking at connectivity and participation and negotiation and diversity and, you know, getting all the necessary parties included in the conversation when you're addressing some problem. Mm, I think that's fascinating. And Particularly because with any given problem, if you look at it at a macro level, there might be a really clear best practice. But when you look at all of the factors that need to be considered, obviously the solution is never that simple, is it? There are so many other outcomes that need to be considered in a global society. Yeah, no, that's right, Claire. And it is being aware of those or even being open to the discovery of those as you journey along the pathway and trying to discover what's behind some of the outcomes. And particularly, I think, in these studies, there was a lot about gender diversity, you know, including women, because they're often left out of the conversation and Mm. often the major players in the conversation. So, you know, it was really fascinating looking at examples from around the globe where this had occurred or needed to occur or what they were progressing towards putting it into play. So then how did that background lead you into a career in biophilic design? After I, I did those early studies, the environmental science, I actually went and lived in the country for a while, had a bit of an early sea change. I felt like I wanted to walk the talk because in academia, I could see a lot of people involved in this, but they they were so busy, they didn't have time to recycle at home sort of thing. So yes. <laughs> I went down, I lived on an ecological community. And that was when I was having children. And I really wanted my children to be in the country, you know, to grow up, to have a bit of that experience that my parents had provided me. So, you know, I did. I grew veggies and had goats and all of that. And then after a while, my elder son was coming up to uni. My parents were ageing. So it was time to come back to the city. And I felt like I wanted to do something. So I looked into the sustainability studies. I was doing a master's. With the same professor who I'd studied environmental science with, different uni, same professor, he's sort of been my mentor. And then we had a visit with a man, Tim Beatley, from Virginia, and he was one of the forerunners of biophilic design. He'd been involved in that group that got together and progressed this, and he and I talked and met a lot, and it was just seemed a natural progression for me. You know, it brought my love of nature combined it with the environmental science, the sustainability, and brought it into the city. So I thought, well, if I've got to leave the country, then maybe I can bring a bit of that country into the city. And 
I've always had that strong desire to connect people with nature or so they get to, you know, experience some of that. So I, I undertook my PhD and part of that was travelling North America for three months, interviewing all those early leaders and the forerunners of biophilic design. So I I got to see amazing places and had great interviews. My younger son travelled with me and, yeah, he was my little tech guru. <laughs> we all need those, don't we? <laughs> oh, God, he was fabulous. So, tell me, Yana, then on the back of those studies, how do you describe biophilic design? What is it and why is it important? Biophilic design... It's more than greenery. It's about sort of facilitating our connection with nature. It's recognising that we're biological beings and we're evolutionary, hardwired, genetically programmed to respond to nature. And it's not just greenery, but it's all the patterns, forms, shapes, materials, sights, smells, sounds of nature, the spaces and places of nature. There's 14 patterns that is the base of biophilic design there's a 15th now which is awe you know when you you see a beautiful sunset or a view and you go ah you know I that, love that. that that all that is evoked so it's facilitating that connection with humans and nature in our habitats when i present I talk about zoos. I show early photos of animals, how they were kept in concrete cages. And then looking at how zoos now, like if we're going to keep animals, they now recreate their natural habitat because the animals are a lot healthier and happier and they thrive and reproduce and all these things. But it's like that thinking hasn't translated through how we build our habitats. Mm. You know, we've advanced very quickly from the hunter-gatherer to this high-energy, high-tech phase. But our biology has not progressed as fast. You know, we still need nature. So, yeah, it's designing not just for human benefit, though, also, you know, biodiversity and, and trying to create habitats. Where I live in Perth, we're a biodiversity hotspot. So, you know, a lot of places, when they allow their habitat creation in their cities, you know, they, they end up living with a lot of biodiversity. I mean, Singapore is a great example mm. of the connectedness there. So you've now gone ahead and written a book, The Emergence of Biophilic Design, and in the synopsis there was a line that said, it's the story of a social movement and how a gathering of people with a common interest and passion can spark a global trend. And this podcast obviously explores how creative thinking can impact change in the world. And so I loved that idea. I'm interested to hear about how this happened with biophilic design and if there's something you can share that we can learn from it. I mean, how do you bring people together to spark a global trend? It's a really interesting story, the progression, because it spans decades. Biophilia started with a 1960 psychoanalyst called Eric Fromm. He was looking for the essence of humankind and what made us tick, really. And he thought it was to overcome that anxiety we feel about the separation from nature, whether we recognise it or not. And there's two pathways, a regressive and progressive path. So on the progressive path, he put biophilia, so bio is life. Philia is the opposite of phobia. It's our love of life. And then it was Edward Wilson, 
He went on a deep immersion trip into nature and he started to sort of really feel that connectedness and that sense of oneness. And then he talked with another sociobiologist, Stephen Kellett, and they came up with the biophilia hypothesis that we are hardwired to respond to nature. A lot of these responses are survival responses, you know, Mm. when you start to break them down. And then Stephen Kellett decided he wanted to see how can we bring this into these cities. So he brought together quite a diverse group of people from academics to developers to real estate. They gathered in a beautiful setting surrounded by nature. I've talked to many of them who were at that gathering. They said having the nature facilitated the creativity because when you're in nature, your brain relaxes, your stress goes down. It's amazing the research because now we can measure brain waves and, you know, stress responses. And so being immersed in nature, that's where they came up with biophilic design and how we can incorporate all these patterns of biophilia into cities to try and allow people to have a daily dose of nature. It's a lot about mental health. We're very much as well talking about the built environment on this particular podcast. And so it is such a topical thing for architects who are designing spaces for people to work in, learn in, reside in, that there are some incredible and very compelling research statistics out there that show the benefits to physical health and mental health from having nature accessible within those spaces. Can you talk to us about some of those? Absolutely. You look at the big companies, Amazon, Google, YouTube, they've utilised biophilic design to foster that creativity. YouTube have a creativity sort of think tank room. Uh, They've got flickering flames and different patterns of nature in there. So Bank of America in Manhattan saw a lot of big corporations and, and smaller ones that have introduced nature because they know their workers are more present at work and absenteeism goes down. So even here in Perth where we've done some green walls inside, you know, and workers get joy out of seeing the plants and there's so many benefits that it it can bring. And so material choice plays a big part in biophilic design as well, doesn't it? So it's not just about views and plants and actual physical representations of nature. It's also utilising natural materials, isn't it, in the built environment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think definitely wood and timber, I mean, it's absolutely fabulous and we need to do it more because, you know, when a tree grows, it sequesters so much carbon and it's great to see there's such a move towards tall timber buildings that are happening now and the beauty of wood and and rock and even if you've got carpet that can be in a pattern that evokes a forest leafy floor or something. A really good example of biophilic design being used was in the rebuild of Sandy Hook where they had a mass shooting in the US in 2012 and the school was a small town the school got bulldozed and rebuilt and the architects worked with the community 
about what they wanted and they really wanted a place of safety but also of beauty and they have this amazing school there now where they've utilized so much of biophilic design like even the patterns on the walls that look like trees and the light and the little treehouse looks and the patterns on the floor so that you feel like you're walking through a forest and so it's all to do with safety and views and being able to see so the children they're happy at to come here and it just makes them feel more relaxed and they learn better. It's amazing. It is amazing. So so your chair of Biophilic Cities Australia, your aim is to bring nature into cities Australia-wide. What are some of the ways that cities are making that happen? I think particularly with COVID, there was a huge momentum to bring nature into offices. I worked on building standard um, task force about what to do after, you know, COVID. And people seem to seek out green spaces where they could in, in COVID. And a lot of people who were locked down in pretty depressing places where they had no fresh air or access to nature and where people could access green space. I think it was also about de-stressing, but also getting a sense of connection in a time of isolation. So often if you look at a city, there's a lot of sort of wasted space, you know, or or there might be street trees down the footpath and they're, they're just in solitary confinement there. You know, there's no plants. They're just struggling with the radiant heat. They could have plants that have their own little habitats and ecoclimates going on. So it, it's sort of utilising those spaces. And then in buildings, it's looking at SI, getting that sense of place, you know, try and bring that outside in and integrate it. It's, biophilic design is very much about that integration and connection. So, you know, plan, hold green corridors and green roofs. I mean, really, they're a no-brainer. They've been so successful and the biodiversity and the reduced energy consumption because they're cool. And then I love biosolar. So you can generate power with your photovoltaics over top of your green roof and there's a wonderful synergy that happens with the green roof cooling the PV so their power output is greater. So I would love to be involved in housing development where we've got to move to high density and there's such a pushback about densifying our cities but it can be done so beautifully using biophilic design. It's just about clever, creative design and thinking and being prepared to just think outside the box. And there's just so many fabulous global examples, you know, there's so much you can learn from. Well, I think that's a perfect place for us to end, Yana. I think it's a wonderful thing that you're doing with Biophilic Cities. I know personally that I'm a bushwalker, a very outdoorsy girl, and I start to get quite agitated if I haven't had a good immersion in nature for a while. I'm always got a bushwalk on the calendar for myself, and I know it's very, very important for me personally. But it has been a pleasure to have you on, Yana. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Claire. It's been an honour. Make sure to check out the show notes at originalthinkers.com.au where you'll find further information and links to everything we talked about on today's episode. Thanks also to the sponsors of this episode, Original Tasmanian Timber. Make sure to visit tasmaniantimber.com.au. 
the ultimate resource for architects, designers and anyone interested in local, sustainable and beautiful timbers. And Cusp Building Solutions. Cusp created the first hardwood CLT and the strongest CLT in the world from certified plantation-grown eucalyptus. Cusp makes what's next. Visit cusp.com.au. And finally, thank you for joining me. Join me next time when I speak with Anne Shooter, ecologist and Tasmania's Chief Forest Practices Officer. Sustainable forest management is about environmental values, economic values, social values, and trying to embed all of those different things when you're doing forest practices planning and forestry operations around Australia or internationally, the Tasmanian system is held in high regard. And a lot of that is about our emphasis on planning before doing, getting out in the field, finding out what's in the forest before the forest harvesting operation commences. And that's a real unique part of our system. 